Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. We made it to chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Blessed is the reading of God's holy instruction to all whom He has called. And so, Father, we need Your grace. We need the grace of the power of Your Spirit again and again and again to work in us that which is pleasing in Your sight, which is here this morning, is striving to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, Father, so to that end, help me teach this text, unfold this text. Let us see clearly what is written and apply it to our hearts, to our lives, to our actions, to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Alright. Rhetorical question. You ever find that people can be difficult? Irritating? Can cause you pain to be a parent or a child or a spouse or a long-time friend. Or if you have been one who has been called out of spiritual death, out of darkness, into salvation, into light, into new life in Christ, and therefore you find yourself in Jesus' community, the church. Have you ever experienced irritation, pain, conflict? All right. Now, the next question. In the midst of that, have you ever noticed within yourself these sinful responses in you that can just destroy the unity of the Spirit in the local church? By the destroying of peace, peaceful relations with other believers. Rhetorical. You should answer yes. Okay. That's normal. That's to be expected. And God ordains that it happen. Why? For your growth. So that we would be growing up into all the fullness of Christ. How? Not just by experiencing that and just sinning, but 
in the midst of that real life ongoing experience of conflict within relationships, we who are believers would be obeying this passage this morning. That's why. And this passage, verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 4, is the road to maturity, growing up into all the fullness of Christ. And that's it. So if you're there, look at Ephesians 4. Verses 1 to 3 are fairly simple. There is a command, and then there is the way to go about fulfilling that command. That's the structure. The command is verse 1, therefore... I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, here it is, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's the command. Walk this way. Then verses 2 to 3 are the way to go about walking that way. Verse 3 is how to walk in a worthy manner of the calling with which you've been called. And that is this. Be a person who is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so you say, okay, I'll go do that. How do you do that? That's what verse 2 answers. Verse 2 is the specific way of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here it is, therefore. By walking, living your life with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's the text as a whole. Now, off the top, I want to consider two things that are right there in the very first few words. I, it's Paul, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Okay, so I want to look at therefore and prisoner just for two minutes. The therefore means at this point now in this letter. It means because of everything I've already said from chapter 1, 2, and 3. From the first half of the book, which has been very doctrinal, theological. It has been a doctrine of salvation and a doctrine of the church, ecclesiology how Jesus has made Himself a church. And now, therefore, the rest of the book, live this out. That's destruction. But secondly, He says, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, have you ever thought, why does He say that here? You should always think this way as you read Scripture. I mean, you, well, because it's true. So what? I mean, he might have had a bagel with cream cheese that morning. He didn't tell us. Millions of things are true. So why does he say it 
here. And he's already told us that back at chapter 3, verse 1. So you're thinking, okay, he's not just throwing away words. Okay. So here's my shot at it. I think the reason now, Paul says, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk is because he wants them to feel the gravity and the importance and how serious what he's going to say about walking this life is. That's what I think he's doing. He, he is essentially saying by this, the gospel that you believers and I have been saved by is what got me thrown into prison. And my faithfulness to walk in line with the call with which I have been called is why I'm in prison. And it's worth it. That's what he's saying. It's worth forsaking your mom and your dad and your siblings and your best friends if the call has called you to a life that they can't stand and they walk away. It's a call that's worth suffering in prison for. Or dying for. That's why I think he says, it's not throw away. Again, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Now notice the command and the word he uses. I urge you, this is a strong plea to walk. He does mean, in other words, live, conduct your life this way. Now, I want you to see, if you have your Bible, look over the next page. We've already seen it. And he's used the same term, walk, in chapter 2. Start with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked before coming alive to Christ. You once walked, what do you mean? This way, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our sin nature carrying out the desires of the body. He says, you did, but now you don't. Now just come up to to our verse now, chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, your life, if you've been called, your heart your way of having ears to hear a call. It's different than before. The call. You're different. And therefore, your choices, your decision making, your lifestyle in this life is altered from the way it used to be. You're not perfect. Absolutely. You still sin, but you are different from chapter 2 the way we all once walked. And so he says, live out this new life. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, we're going to sit on that word for a while. It's not throwaway for Paul again. To understand, okay, I'm supposed to walk, how do I do life? You can't do this without understanding. What did he mean by call? Because you've got to walk worthy of the call to which you have been called. See, this word call for Paul, it is a technical, deeply theological term. Core term for him about Christianity. So, just listen to how Paul uses this term in his letters. In Galatians 1.6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. Well, he means God. He could have just said God. But he doesn't. He wants to Him who called you in the grace of Christ. In Galatians 1.15, he says, When He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Again, he could say, God, but no, this is the God I'm talking about. The one who said, Paul! Stop persecuting the church and come. And he came. See, when a person is born again to new life in Christ, Paul says, see that? They're alive. God called them. That's his thinking. just, Just listen to this. Within seven verses, he uses the word call or called seven times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? No, stop. He could have said, Was anyone at the time of his conversion or his initial saving faith in Christ, his becoming a Christian? It's it's exactly what he means throughout. But he says it this way. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when called is Christ's slave. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each one was called, converted to Christ, but he says, called, there let him remain with God. And 
In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul writes, and he means, when you came to faith. Here, okay. He means when the transition happened in your life from darkness into Christ. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh, powerful, noble, etc. He picks some scum buckets, is what he says. He called you from all walks of life. Okay, so why? Why does Paul use this term? And, and so often, in, in what you've already seen, and you're going to see more, I mean, he uses this a lot. Why, did, why doesn't he just constantly say, when you converted to Christ? Or, when you chose Christ. But instead, he says, when somebody else did something. That's how he speaks about our coming alive. When somebody else called you. Well, I think the point of why he does that is because when he says when you were called, it makes it very clear you did not do the action of that verb. It was done to you. Someone else did it. God did the calling. And we are passive in that calling. He called you at a spiritual death. It's like a dead person. As Paul already said in Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses. In which you just formed. You, you, you had no ability to hear. You had no spiritual ears because you had no spiritual life. But God said something. He called you. Dead person, come alive. And the spiritually dead person came alive. And we're raised up with Christ. That's Paul's theology. That's his thinking on the issue of how people are being saved by the cross. And that call is based upon nothing that the person has done to say, oh, I can see that. I'm going to call them. And that thinking so drove Paul's practice as an evangelist and as a missionary and as a pastor. That, listen to how he unfolds this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 to 24. So here I go on missionary journeys to cities and towns throughout the Roman Empire bringing the gospel for the first time. And he says, and what happens is this, in every city there's a synagogue, there's Jews, and I go there first, and then there's all the non-Jews. He says, for Jews... They demand signs. In Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we don't cater to them. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the Gospel. And guess what? It's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to Gentiles. 
And so nobody's saved. Unless the next thing happens. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks. To them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in Romans 8, that great passage of His saying, here's redemptive history in a nutshell. Whom He foreknew. Sounds like Paul right in Ephesians and he starts off the whole book with He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. For whom He foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Just stop for a minute. Think about what Paul's doing in Ephesians 4. Now you got that? You've been called into this? Now walk sanctification, being conformed to the image of His Son. And whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He also justified. means He called them to faith. Can't be justified without faith. Everyone He calls gets justified because everyone He calls comes to faith. And whom He justifies, He glorifies. And so, with this call, it means it's based upon nothing in anybody. It's not based upon you being Jewish or being non-Jewish. It's not based upon you being a male or a female or a slave or free. It's not based upon your economic status or your social status. It's not based upon you being a very nice person and a neighbor. Listen to how he says in wrapping up God's election and choice in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction... Just it didn't pause Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. He's not done. Now watch. Even us, me, Paul, a Jew. And you, Roman Christians, mainly Gentiles, but some Jews, even us, whom He has called. Not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Or, towards the end of his life, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, chapter 1, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Watch watch the theology come in here. Who saved you and me, Timothy? He 
saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not because of works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This call is a supernatural call to come into a communion and relationship very personally by the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, the Holy Trinity. We are pulled out of darkness, out of death, into spiritual life in communion with His Son, as He said already in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive. Together with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. For by grace you have been saved. He didn't use the word call there. But that's his definition of it. Communion. Real communion with Christ. Listen to how he says this in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a supernatural call. Now, the kicker for Paul is that our being united to Christ, it does mean we've been called out of darkness, out of death into life, but it also for Paul means we've been called to a future hope. That's it. He's... If you're called something that has rocked your life, that, that because therefore you can't walk the way you used to, is because you are driven by a hope in the future. This is how Paul said it in Ephesians 1.18. So that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. To know those, the riches of the glory of His grace. To be sovereignly called to saving faith in Christ. It's a call to share in the future eternal kingdom of God at Jesus' second coming. And so, Paul's understanding of call is that when we sinners have that life-changing moment of the miracle of the call, we, we come to Christ. We can call it conversion. From conversion during that period of time up until Jesus' second coming when He brings the future it makes it very present to us. Paul's understanding of the call is that believers are in that time walking 
worthily of the call to which they have been called. Listen to how he says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Sound familiar? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom in glory. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says it this way, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and He surely will do it. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 He says, To this He called you through our Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He closes 1 Timothy Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life to which He has called you. So to be called to a new heart, to new affections, to a new lifestyle means to actively live in line with the initial call out of darkness and in line with the view of the future glorious kingdom. That's what he's driving at. One more, he says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.11-12. I always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you be glorified in Him. Well, how are you going to worthy of His calling? Well, let's turn. He says, I pray this, that your faith in the future will be so powerful and so strong it would produce every good work. In other words, that you would walk worthy of the calling. And so that brings us now back full circle to verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay. If we hear Paul, and we hear Paul's theology on call, no wonder the visible church on earth consists of many, many people who have no idea what I just said. 
It doesn't resonate with their life, with their thoughts, or with their mind. Simply because of what Jesus said. They don't have ears to hear. They're not sheep. So they don't hear the shepherd. And that's why they don't walk in a worthy manner to the call with which Christians are called. Why don't they walk in a worthy way? Because they have never been called. They have not experienced this call. Yes, they have been told that if you acknowledge the truth that Jesus from Nazareth died for sins and was resurrected from the dead and sins are on the cross and so He puts them away and so that you, you don't have to go to hell. So that you won't suffer these really bad things. You don't want to suffer. No, no, no. Okay. okay. Accept Him into your heart. Pray with me. And there might even be tears that flow. Yes, I don't want to go to hell. I want that. Okay, now you're a Christian. Because they say, yeah, I I would like that deal. But they haven't been called. They're cultural Christians. Many were raised in the church. Uh, whether it's Roman Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, Greek Orthodoxy, or popular American Evangelicalism, they're raised up in the church. It's their culture. It is their heritage. But all the evidence as they grow older points to the fact on how they walk that they have not been called, at least yet, to saving faith producing a worthy walk of all true saints. And so as Paul begins the second half of Ephesians, this verse 1, it's like a topic sentence, right? You get that topic sentence right for your whole paper, right? I mean, you're writing papers. It's like the topic sentence for the rest of this letter. Where he's going to unfold through the next three chapters, what the walk is looking like as you walk together as believers in life. So, for instance, just a taste, it means as you walk, you are growing in the knowledge of the faith together as Christians so that you are no longer deceived by false doctrine. It means that you are speaking the truth to one another as believers with a heart of love and care. It means you're no longer walking as unbelievers walk. Or as Paul says, that you put off your old self. That old manner of life which belongs to your former pre-Christ days. Or, in chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and Slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Or in chapter 5, verse 3, sexual immorality and all 
impurity, or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Or husbands, love your wives. Or wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Or all of you, constantly put on the armor of God and fight against all the deceptions and schemes of the devil. That's where he's going. That's what the walk looks like over time. But now, back to our immediate context. This passage here, verses 1 to 3, is about the underlying manner of walking worthy with Christ with one another in church life. And the goal of walking worthily of the call is verse 3. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond or glue of peace. So, context, context. What's he saying? To maintain the unity of the Spirit, meaning what he has already let us know. The unity that Christ Jesus with His blood on the cross already secured. What I mean is this. Either listen or look at it. Back in chapter 2, Paul had clearly said, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, Gentiles, you have been brought near by all these great promises in the Hebrew Jewish Scriptures. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus Himself is our peace. Notice that word. Back to our text. In the bond of peace. He Himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, who hated each other. He's made us both one. And He's broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility so that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, and thus making peace. And He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, which is the opposite. Right? Of peace. The unity that Christ purchased on the cross, Paul is saying, must now be held on to, lived out, and brought to manifestation in the life of Jesus' churches. He says, we have it. He purchased it. Now we must pursue holding on to it. To the unity of the Spirit in the bond 
peace. Bond, like, like ligaments, tie your body together. Or the glue. Okay, it bonds of peace. Meaning, the glue is the peace. That's how he means that there. The peace is the bond. It is the glue that preserves the unity of the Spirit in the life of the church. The peace between real human beings in church life is what fastens them together and is preserving the unity of the Spirit. Why? (laughs) Because without the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of relationships, this would be impossible. It's it's easy if you live in a cave as a hermit. You you can't exist in a family, in a house, without running into tension and constant needfulness to say, how do we bring peace? Or in any kind of group or community. So within the life of the church where it really can bring in people from all kinds of different Family of origins. We don't do things that way. We talk this way. We don't talk that way. Why does that person talk loud? Why do they talk softly? With so many different personalities and backgrounds and idiosyncrasies and cultures. (laughs) How are you going to maintain love, care, and unity with one another? So, what Paul has given us here, he's saying there's only one way to go on putting up with one another. In love. There's only one way to go on when people sin against you. Or when they don't, and you're, you're just irritated by them. And by their differences. And that only way to go on in bearing with them is by being humble. It's by being gentle. And it's by being patient with each other. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says the glue, which is the peace, which preserves the unity of the Spirit, is verse 2. Verse 2 is just stating Verse 3, more specifically. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So this here, this is the application of this sermon to us this morning. Notice again, start with verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, what do you mean? Walk with all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing 
with one another. Be in love. The way we are to put up with one another in love is by walking in humility and gentleness and patience. Now that, that word translated humility, here it means the opposite of having an exalted view of yourself, of your importance, of your centrality to all of existence. That's why some translations translate this word lowliness. When you're around others, you don't think of yourself as high and above. You think of yourself low. That's what the word means. Now, David, I know he's, it's written in Hebrew, but it was translated about 170 years before Jesus was born into Greek, called the Septuagint, the Old Testament. And the way, this, so here's this word in the Greek translated from David's Psalm 131.2. David says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised high in some something. Now here comes the word. But I have calmed or humbled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's humility. David goes before God and he'll pray and write it publicly. God, this is what I need. I've got to continually act. I've got to do an action. Humble, calm, quiet, my soul, my internal life until I can see myself before you like a little one and a half year old weaned. This is the word that is translated into the Greek of that glorious psalm. Aren't you glad Psalm 51 is in the Bible? Thank God. David, a man after God's own heart, sins like I do. And in verse 17 he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is what you are looking for. It's a broken spirit. It's a broken and a, and here's the word, contrite heart. I know it means kind of repentance. So this humility has to do seeing itself in reality before God. And he says, God, that kind of a heart of humility you will not despise. And then Paul uses this same word for humility in Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 3. Speaking to the church. Do nothing from Selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, there it is, in humility, consider others to be more significant than yourself. And then Paul takes that word humility and he puts it together with the word gentleness in this text. 
Why? You, you know why? Life is filled with all kinds of interactions and circumstances that really call forth for a consciousness here. <laughs> I better restrain my feelings. I better restrain acting out without thinking about it. It takes effort here to be gentle, to be polite. So, so in Galatians, when Paul says to the church, brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should go, blast them! Does anybody know the Bible? No, okay. No, he says, you who are spiritual should ignore it. He doesn't say that either. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And of course he goes, knowing what is why true humility says I've been called out of wrath. It 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 doesn't think the line is just a you know some crazy mean nothing statement when we say, but for the grace of God I would do the same thing and worse. To the extent we live in that. He says, that's humility. You're able, if you have a repentant brother or sister, to deal with them in gentleness now. See, those two terms together, this, this humility and this gentleness, it, it is calling forth the, the conscious reality of our ongoing position before our great powerful, holy God who is saving us. Which means we are always the weaned child. We are a desperate beggar looking for mercy and grace and help and handouts. That's how we approach other people. And you won't be arrogant in those moments. We thus serve them. And we're thus willing to be kind. Because kindness has been shown to us. It was very kind that God called you. And we need that humility, kindness, prayerful disposition, particularly in the circumstances that lead to us being very irritated and frustrated because of the differences between us and other people. And so he adds the word patience. See, patience, when he says practice patience, that means you feel tension. You feel anger. You feel frustration. But you choose not to fly off the handle. Patience is that word that is the, it's the opposite of the person with a short fuse. That short fuse person, that's how they live their life, that's not a patient person. As Paul says in the love chapter, love, what's the first thing he says? Love is patience. So 
People like you, people like me, we do things that irritate people. We do things that harm people. We sin against people. We hurt people's feelings. You can exist in a family, in a workplace, on a ball team. Well, maybe a ball team. Probably the only place you could do it. A guy's ball team. But you can't exist in churches without that reality. And thus, with the constant need to go on obeying Paul here, bearing with one another. Putting up with. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with other people's shortcomings, differences, disagreements, their quirkiness. It means bearing with those in a way that make room for the differences between you and the other. In other words, we need humility, don't we, when you know what's right. I'm not talking about moral here. It's a whole other issue. We'll be moving towards that and where Paul's going. We're not talking about moral lifestyles of sexual immorality or thievery. Or, we're, not do, we're talking about just differences in living life. I think you should do this. Or this is the wise way to go about this in the workplace. Or economically, you should do this or that. And they don't do what you know is the only right thing to do. <laughs> and you get frustrated. And to bear with here doesn't mean, oh, that's it. I'm done with them. No, it says to bear with them. And then he modifies it in love. The difference between, this person's an idiot. I really dislike them. I'm fine with that. I'll just try to avoid them. I'm bearing with it. I put up with it. I had a person say to me one time in church life, years ago, do I have to like him? Okay. You, you should move there, yeah. If you want to live worthily of the call, you should move to say I want to like him. Yes. To bear with in love. Loving brothers and sisters in all our differences and irritations and conflicts ultimately means caring about them and giving them room to be different from you in non-moral situations. And so, just, just hear the great passage again of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul Bear with one another in love. What do you mean? Here's his definition. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
So it's humble. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. And so, Sovereign Grace Fellowship, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk with all humility, with all gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love. And thus, being a person who is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond and the glue of peace with brothers and sisters to the glory of God. Father, thank You for Your Word. As we sang earlier, we breathe it. We live on it. We're desperate for deep thoughts about Your eternal workings and very practical thoughts about our daily living. Your Word is our life. The Gospel is our hope. And the Holy Spirit is the power we need. Faithful are You who has called us. And we know You will continue to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.